Welcome to this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My co-host is Greg Cott. And if you want to be the first to hear these bonus episodes, become a Sound Opinions member on Patreon, like Charles Wynn from Denver, Colorado. Thanks for your support, Charles. It means a lot. Today we have a very special bonus episode, which can only happen, Greg, on the podcast. That's right, Jim. Uh, we've reviewed several albums by a Canadian punk band we called Effed Up on the radio. We had to. Yes, and uh, now on the occasion of their sixth studio album, One Day, being released, we're talking with frontman Damien Abraham and bassist Sandy Miranda. But the thing that can only happen on our podcast is we can actually say the band's real name. That's coming up after the break. Greg and I are absolutely thrilled on the occasion of the new album One Day to have two members of Fucked Up with us, uh, in large part because talking to Fucked Up, Damian Abraham and bassist uh, Sandy Miranda in this case, uh, is always a pleasure. But also, Greg, we can finally, uh, on this bonus podcast, say Fucked Up. Yeah, we had to Can't dance. Say it on public radio. We had to dance yes. around that many times. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's Every time you release a record, <laughs> it was a challenge on public radio to, to try to review it. Effed up. It doesn't quite have the same big, resonance. Big to discussion. It. How do we refer? We're not, we're not yeah. going to not review the record, okay? And then the then the executive producers would be like, "What the you know?" Okay, <laughs> we. It's funny because like I I think in the beginning, not in the beginning, but at, at a certain point when the band started getting attention, the the name served us and and benefited mm-hmm. us, right? But now it's it's funny how it's suddenly become a detriment. Like we can't advertise our shows on Facebook. Mm. We can't right. release our videos on YouTube because you can't embed embed a fucked up video on an, right. an external site. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and and these are all like rich problems to have for a band right. that started as a First DIY world problem. Exactly. Yeah, for a DIY hardcore band, this is ridiculous to yeah. be complaining about. But at the same time, it is frustrating. We're trying to make a career of it. Oh, yeah, well, I'll give you one example of uh, another band that had a similar problem, uh, the Butthole Surfers. Yes. Uh, for the longest time, I, first of all, I couldn't even write about them. My, my editors were like, you, no. you can't write about that, no. that, a band with that kind of a name. And then I said, <laughs> then, it, then we sort of compromised on, on B-hole surfers, right? Which, Which is, is just, awful, yeah. but at least I was able to write about the band. Suddenly, Butthole Surfers becomes okay to print in a daily, mid, huge Midwestern uh, newspaper, Chicago Tribune, when they bought an ad for Lollapalooza. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, you got, you got oh, yeah. Butthole Surfers yeah, yeah. the size of a frickin' headline on a full-page ad in the paper, and suddenly it became magically okay to use Butthole Surfers. So you guys... Pay, Pay for a full-page ad in a yeah, daily yeah, newspaper. There, there yeah. oh, okay. The problems are solved, man. I came across this No paper's going to turn down a kind of... It's a fascinating kind of article in New Toronto about you guys. It was a follow-up 10 years on to a cover story, right? And a lot of the interview dealt with, I think Mike was talking, I think you talked a little bit, Damien, um, was, you know, how come you guys didn't become huge? You were about to become, you know, and the most obvious thing is, well, we couldn't say the name, right? <laughs> but that, like, never comes up, you know? Well, and, you know, you're, you're diplomatic. You say, well, we're hard hardcore band you know where we're uh, a taste for certain people and we have concept albums and we have hey yeah and it's like yeah and also we're called fucked up <laughs> and, and i think yeah. that we we are that you know like i think that was the other reason that we couldn't ever become a, a real professional slick band outside of the fact that we our name is what it is is because we're not those kind of people like we we don't yeah i don't think we ever 
any of us thought we'd be doing music, not even professionally, but even like semi-professionally. Like we all loved it and we're very passionate about it. But this was like such an outside weird thing. But back to the Buttle Surfers, yesterday Pincus posted two uh, tapes that um, Daniel Johnson had made them. And apparently he would also refuse to say butthole. So he put <laughs> B-hole surfers on the tapes for Pincus. Oh, well. And actually when I put up the Pincus episode of the podcast, iTunes still censors butthole. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. I know. You know, did they ever listen to the 45th president of the United States? I mean, the things that he regularly said <laughs> and tweeted, you know, I thought made, you know, as if uh, uh, Attorney General John Mitchell back in the Watergate days when he said Katie Graham's going to get her big fat blank caught in the ringer in the midst <laughs> of water, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, look, if it's good enough for them, how come the rest of us? Yeah, uh, but we we stray far afield. One day um, is you know you guys are renowned for uh, meticulous, uh, brilliant studio construction. Sometimes fifty guitar tracks, right? Sprawling concept albums, uh, but always uh, ultra driving and melodic. One day was recorded, indeed, in one day. Over the course of several days, I think that's the. Okay. Oh, all right. But, all right. But all right. no, but but within within twenty four yeah, hours. Twenty four hours was the parameter. You know, twenty four hours with yeah, breaks to eat and sleep. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, Mike, Mike would probably not, re- not sleep so much. Sandy is saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I drink a lot of coffee, and now that I got an espresso machine, uh, boy, watch out! Yeah. I'm on four doubles a day right now. But no, definitely caffeine carried me through, and pizza actually during those couple days when I when I did the record, uh, recording. I, I think for me, it kind of worked out differently because like the original plan was to kind of do what Mike did, which is you know break it up over eight day. Or I would I, with vocals, it's weird because I can only get two and a half songs a day, kind of mm. finish a record before the voice is just shot. So, yeah. uh, so I was going to have to spread it out. I think I was going to do eight days for four hours. I forget how the math worked out, but I had this huge plan to go to Vancouver and then the pandemic hit. And mm-hmm. so I ended up kind of writing it over the course of, of months, you know, just kind of like had melodies in my head that I was listening to before when I stopped writing it, but they were still kind of kicking around in my head. So when I did sat down to write it, it had been kind of being written over this span of months in the end like a lot more of a spread out period of time than i normally write records where i'm like mm. sitting down like oh my god i'm in the studio tomorrow like we wrote the other shoe i wrote it on the way to the studio because i was so far <laughs> behind in lyrics uh and i think the uh the vocal thing also because of the pandemic you know i do studio sessions and then uh we get shut down and locked down again in toronto and i wouldn't mm. be able to go back into the studio to do another session for two or three weeks so it ended up once again even though it was 24 hours, it was over a hugely extended period of time. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, formed way back in 2001. So so recording this way now, all these years later, Sandy, what did it teach you about the band, the essence of the band? Even if we can't be together, right, or we can't be together all the time and we're not touring, what did you come away with uh, that is this endeavor of Fucked Up? Um, that that things can be done in less time than you think you'll need. I mean, I, for one, kind of struggle with perfectionism and I can kind of go over, you know, the same piece of work, whether it be music or anything else, over and over and mm. over. And I, I struggle to know when is it done, it, you know, because you, you, you can work on something forever. But with this, 
you know, I had a parameter to work with and it, it forced me ju just to get her done and, and not be so precious about it. I mean, I'm just speaking for myself sure. as bass. I know vocals are, it's, are a completely different beast. Um, but it taught me that, uh, you know what, some, it, it you know, nothing's ever going to be perfect. And, and usually, you know, what you can do, um, you know, uh, what you can do in a short amount of time is, is sometimes, you know, that's, that, that's, that, that's kind of all you need. Like, it just taught me to not be so precious about everything. Well, Sandy, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I, I, I've talked to, we've, we've talked to a bunch of perfectionist musicians over the years. Not all of them are perfectionists, but some of them are. And you ask them about their previous work and they said, I can't listen to it because all I hear are the mistakes. <laughs> all I hear is what I did oh, wrong. No. So how do you feel now it's about true. this one? Um, I think it sounds great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not so hard on myself, but you know what, like even like in world, sometimes it, you know, our first, uh, studio, al studio album, it is a little difficult to listen, but it's still a good album. I think mm. like I, I have no, no regrets and, you know, no, no doubts about it, but I just, I don't know. I, th I think I, as I've gotten older, I, I, I'm just a bit more content and, and less hard on myself and, uh, just a bit more gentle with myself. Yeah. Good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think for um, the approach to it for me is kind of the opposite. Like I normally get in the studio and I'm really kind of rushed and I only have a certain limited amount of time. Lyrics sometimes are written right before I'm going in or even in the studio, which still wound up happening a couple of times on this record too, because you always want to change things when you're in the booth. But at the same time, like I felt a lot more easy on myself in a way like the the drive to kind of push yourself because like the limitations were already in place so there's no need to have more self-imposed limitations this time around so it was it was weirdly liberating you know this sort of mm. way of doing a record for us and I don't, know, I don't mean to speak for sandy on this but i did find it like you know because we've always been separate like we we adapted to you know um remote recording during the pandemic period very well because for the last sort of 10 years we've been kind of doing it in our own spaces in our own paces and doing it our own way so the isolation and the remote aspect of it didn't really factor in this time i think for us this time it was sort of the constraints that we put on it ourselves and sort of these sort of um well, i don't want to say restraints or constraints because ultimately i did say you know they are ultimately more liberating for me i think mm. Yeah, and also like um, recording remotely, being on my own, there was less pressure to have to perform in front of others watching me. Right? Um, I'm at home. I have freedom. I could pause, and I can, you know, you know, go make a coffee, or or I can come back, and I can work on uh, what I want without having any kind of eyes. Like you know, that that whole thing when someone's watching you do something, all of a sudden you're fumbling and you can't yeah. get the, you know, <laughs> you, you, you all of a sudden you're just worse at what you're doing. But being alone. I'm, I'm very comfortable just being on my own and, and it's, it is, it is freeing and it takes off a lot of anxiety to kind of just have no pressure placed on myself, you know, due to eyes like behind my head watching every, my every move. And, and, and it allows me to play around a bit more and try different strands and I could do different takes and no one's there judging me or, or, or judging my, you know, proficiency at, you know, at my instrument or what have well, you. Well, it's a, it... You know, what you're saying is, is interesting to me because when I first heard, you know, we made this, you know, it's a one day record. We made this in one day and I go, God, it's going to sound like really stripped down and punky. And 
Then I hear this record, and I go, God, this sounds like one of the most elaborate studio projects I've ever heard in my life. You know, so it's like your typical, if fucked up makes typical records, but they're very layered and lush, and this sounded very much in that vein. So have you just gotten more efficient in the way your ability, your ability oh, yeah. to do these kind got, of things? Yes, we've gotten a lot more efficient. And, and I think just, you know, we've been a band. It'll be 22 years this March. And I, I just think, you know, when you do something long enough, it just, it happens quicker and with a bit greater ease. It's not as much of a struggle as it was, you know, in the old days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think That's it's cool. also, you know, like lockdown in Toronto was pretty strict at different times. And the reality was that I was kind of thinking this would be the last time I get to do this, not because of sort of any internal reason this time, more because there might not be studios open. There might not be yeah. uh, practice spaces. There might not be any of this stuff. So to get the opportunity, especially in the middle of the pandemic, when you know I was able to just kind of go into the studio and, and record vocals for the first time, it was, it felt like the first time I ever getting to do that again, because it was, you know, Scrooge on Christmas Day, like waking up and realizing that you get to try this one more time and you get to do this one more time. And it's it's like, oh, my God, if I ever get to do that again, I will never take it for granted. And I will try 10 times harder and I won't take breaks and I won't smoke dabs in the vocal booth. Like I'm going to I'm going to take <laughs> be more responsible this time around. And and, you know, I, I still smoked weed in the vocal booth, but I definitely was a lot more responsible otherwise. <laughs> well, that we've been hearing that from so many musicians in every genre that we've been interviewing since the end of the world. Um, yeah, it, it really did make uh, musicians in particular uh, thrilled to be able to uh, come together again as a group, to perform live as a group. You know, even that rotten Tuesday night gig with, uh, you know, 50 people there, you know, it's just like, I'm doing it again. It's incredible, you yeah. know. And also just like the, the gratitude i have for the people that are there is is kind of it kind of bounces back when i go and talk to people after the show like people are just so Mm. grateful that they're able to be at a show to get again even if there's only 50 people there but like you get to be there with them and you get to have this moment with each other again and and that's what it was about like i think you know with with our band especially because it was so out of left field everything that happened to us certainly i don't think you know once again not to speak for sandy but i certainly wasn't prepared psychologically for finding a career in music you know that was my dream but it was never gonna happen so i think this finally gave me a second to stop and and take stock of what happened and and just be like wow this was an amazing experience and it was real and if i ever get to do it again i'm gonna take every minute in i think i saw you uh, the band play two or three times one of one of which was um there used to be like a pop music conference in Montreal. Yes, Halifax Pop Explorer early... Montreal. What was it? Pop Montreal. Yeah, something like that in the early, like the mid two thousand, you know, two thousand five ish, eight ish, right in that in that range. And I go, these guys are incredible live band. <laughs> there was a oh, gig I remember on a bridge at South by Southwest. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah but I mean, you saw those gigs. A lot of iconic. Yeah. Shows. You yeah. see those gigs, and you have sort of a different impression in your mind of what the band is going to sound like when you listen to the recordings, and then you go, "This is like a progressive metal punk band." You know, it's amazing, amazing contrast. So, you were able to make a record, but you weren't able to do that live thing, and the band oh, yeah. invests so much in. To me, you know, like you guys are putting so much in that live show was such an experience every time was different and very spontaneous 
That must have been hard to deal with, huh? Just sort of getting that pull out of your your lives. And I'm just curious how, how you handle that psychologically. You know, it must have been tough. It was definitely tough. You know, um, I remember in the early days, because people thought that the pandemic was going to be over, you know, in four, six months, maybe. And then it, it, it just turned into, you know, well, we're still dealing with it. Um, but I think t- for me, w- what was harder than not playing was the prospect of playing again after more than a two year break. Like I remember w- we got an offer to do a tour with Faith No More September of I guess it was not last September, but the one before 2021. And I was just scared to death. I forgot. Like, I was worried that I had forgotten how to play bass, that I was going to be on stage. This older woman who was just like not the same person that I was before the pandemic. And I, I wondered if I even if I was still going to have it, if I was going to remember how to play. And, um, you know, I joke about this all the time, but muscle memory is a real yeah. thing. Like <laughs> yeah. I hadn't played for it was almost three years. And wow. I was I was I, I even cried over the prospect of like just sucking on stage. Right. But uh, when we went back to practice, everything came back. And I was just like hallelujah to my muscles to you know for remembering these you know these tracks that i've been playing for i mean decades at this Mm -hmm. point so that was a relief i never uh i like i kind of dread playing live on a certain level like i think that's why i always did all the weird stuff on stage and i kind of continue to do weird stuff on stage is because i almost just don't know how to process it it's just like going into a full panic attack for Mm. the course of of the proceedings and you know now i've you know quote unquote gain control of it a little bit more and and i can kind of understand what is happening to me but it's taken me a long time to get there i think the thing that i really wound up missing was that cathartic release that screaming and yelling on stage gives you like that's why i think everyone should be in a hardcore band is because <laughs> you know it's, the world would be a happier oh, place there'd be no need for guns absolutely you just feel you just need to let it. Well, that's why primal scream therapy is such a, a thing for some yeah. people. You know, there's like this sort of like, even when you meditate, you're supposed to go, oh, when you release, you know, I, I also tried meditation during the pandemic. I was, I was all over the place in this wellness quest. Um, but meditation is another thing where you're supposed to like verbalize and vocalize. And then what more kind of releasing vocal is there than trying to imitate John yeah. Brandon. <laughs> right. Well, Damien, your, your, your performance on stage is so intense and your vocals are so intense live and on record um, that I think uh, anyone who hasn't delved into some of the things you're talking about, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the story, the epic story of David or um, all the talk about love on this album, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one day, uh, you've said, I saw a quote uh, that it... Uh, uh, it's about um, the sense of purpose in life uh, that you rediscover one day upon meeting someone special who has opened up eternity. What you talking about, Father Damien? I, I think for, I think for me, you know, like I was just a very different person. I probably continue to be a very different person if it wasn't the influence of my my wife Lauren, who you all saw because we share a 
uh, a Zoom account. So that was her picture when I called onto the call. Um, <laughs> I think we've seen her backstage. Yes, of course. Yeah, and, and she, but she is just someone who changed my life. And I think like the the idea of being open to the possibility of meeting someone it doesn't have to be someone necessarily you're 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 in love with, but when you meet someone and they just make you want to be a better person and make you understand why you need to be a better person. And once again, it can also be friends. I've got friends that I've met that make me want to be a better human being because I want to live up to the joy that they're bringing to the world. And I want to be, be like they are in some sort of way. It's like, it sounds, <laughs> sounds creepy and envious in a way, but I, I do think that like every day is a chance to hopefully meet someone that will potentially inspire you or, 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 you know, maybe in the best case scenario, be a partner for your life. You know, my, my wife and I, mm -hmm. our cat passed away yesterday um, and that he's been in our lives for 18 years. And it, oh, wow. and then just, you know, dealing with the, the death of this cat has brought up all these feelings of like, my gosh, my Lauren and I have now been together like my whole life. Like I would not be in this band if it wasn't for Lauren. Like Sandy can attest the amount of times I've tried to quit and walk away from it. <laughs> Lauren's the, Lauren's oh, the yeah. only one that can kind of be like, you're a fool. Like why? Like she can speak to me in those places. And that's, you know, like trying to write songs this time around because it did feel like, well, maybe it, we won't get to do another record. Like maybe this will hmm. be the last record, not because once again, a self-imposed reason, but because of just like, that's what society will dictate in the post pandemic world or wherever we hmm. are. And I knew there were some things I wanted to say and it wasn't like glass boys where it was almost like a fear that I had to say them. this time. It was like, I wanted to say stuff to just because I was like, you know what? I, I, I just never got to say this and I would love the opportunity to get to say it again. And here I am getting to do that. Hmm. Well, in Lords of Kensington, you also talk about um, your hometown, the, the, yep. the, the city that the band basically emerged in and is still in, still in. Yep. Uh, and it sounds, it's almost, it sounds a little bit sad. Yeah, uh, you know, like things have changed and not for the better necessarily. And you know, where where we were and where we are now is not hasn't been a good thing. I think we lived in a really cool time. Like fucked up came in a really cool time to be in a punk band. There were a lot of spaces that were open up and you could do shows there. You know, like I think Sandy and I both and everyone have fucked up. Like we are, we pretty much came of age in venues like Who's Emma in Kensington Market, which is like this anarchist bookstore that was fantastic and just sort of this awareness that our actions our you know, our time in music was also kind of like the beginning of the end of this neighborhood, which has existed far before, you know, the anarchist bookstores had shown up. It, it went back to the sixties and it was a place where a lot of newly arrived Canadians were able to go for food or find cheap rent and things like that. And, you know, there was this acknowledgement and this awareness that, you know, and we weren't the only things doing this. There were a lot of things that were bringing the spotlight and attention to this neighborhood, but that spotlight and attention to this neighborhood accelerated this process that drove people out of this place. They called it their home and ultimately killed the neighborhood. Like there's no anarchist bookstores there anymore. There's no place for mm -hmm. punk bands to play shows there anymore. It's going to be condos. It's going to be expensive stores. And the most upsetting thing is the fact that there's this parkette there, um, which was named after the guy that played on the TV show, Lord of Kensington. And in that parkette, people used to sell weed and the cops got wise to it and they would, you know, sell weed there, like undercover sting types things and bust mm. people all the time. And it was all under the watch of the Toronto police chief at the time, Julian Fantino, who was, 
you just read about him. He's not one of the most likable police chiefs in a city that doesn't have a lot of very likable police chiefs. Uh, but now he owns a weed store in that neighborhood. And the ultimate, like, <laughs> slap in the face of that anyone that's... Cashing in. The and irony. then there's people that are still paying the price of getting thrown in jail. Right. You know, and, and obviously, he doesn't make the laws. He's just enforcing them, quote-unquote. But at the same time, you shouldn't be allowed yeah, to profit yeah. off them now, especially mm-hmm. in that yeah. neighborhood. And just feeling like you've somehow played a small part in this whole thing kind of happening. And also the fact that you couldn't stop it from happening, too, is the other frustrating thing. And this is just in Toronto. Like, the, there's that line in it, which is a very corny line. But I remember seeing Dean handing out his zine outside of the shows. That's a quote from uh, when Randy was on the podcast talking about meeting Dean from No Age for the first time. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, the smell. Like, there's all these venues all over the world where the part of this sort of cycle where you moved into this neighborhood where you could find a place that you could get away with having shows. And then ultimately, the smell holds on. And the smell is still, I think, a, a key punk institution out in Los Angeles. But that neighborhood has changed mm-hmm. around it. And you you got to wonder if the immediate attention that these venues generate and the the sort of like coffee shops that open up to service the people going to these venues are ultimately speeding up this process of gentrification. So a lot of weird, long meditations. Well, this this is the great story of, of, of all uh, underground art, you know, the artists move in and make, make a place vibrant. And then uh, gentrification follows the artists get pushed out. And so do all the people who were living there. And it's almost like we're part of the problem. But you mentioned the podcast, and uh, uh, part of you addressing the problem is, I think, turned out a punk, which in in one way, you know, it's a very simple description. Talk to different people, sometimes people that names will be known, sometimes just regular folk, you know, what did punk, what does punk mean to them? Um, uh, It's political, it's funny, it's very human. Um, So talk about being a brother podcaster. <laughs> Do you listen, Sandy, before I ask? I, you know, my wife says always, you know, she very rarely listens to sound opinions. It's like, I hear you all the time. I don't need it. Yeah. And you you get a lot of exactly Damon. Well, I, I wonder if you have to listen to the podcast. Well, before COVID, I was a, a podcast fiend. I still rock my 160 gigabyte iPod classic, mm. listen to, you know, all kinds of podcasts like music, political and Damien's podcast. But then something happened where I remember I had my iPod. It was about April or May of 2020. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I've listened to everything on this iPod. And as soon as I connected to my computer, all the new podcasts are just going to be talking about COVID. And I just want to get away from that. Now, I know Damien doesn't talk about COVID like a lot of other podcasts I listen to. But I since COVID, I haven't been listening Mm. to much too too many podcasts. But Damien has an excellent podcast. Turned out a punk. <laughs> I give them all the good stories. I give them all the good stories in digest form on the road, much to their chagrin. Oh, there you go. There you like go. You jo- can get it in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Jonah's, Jonah's heard every single good story on that show <laughs> yeah. multiple times now, unfortunately, for him from the band. Um, yeah. Like, my Lauren says the same thing. She's like, you know, I'll have guests on. She's like, oh, I, I love that person. I'd love to listen to it, but. I don't need to know. hear you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't, and I don't blame yeah. anyone for that. You know, I think that's the, uh, that that's the, that's the reality of the podcasting is like finding, finding a person that you do connect with and that you don't have to hear talk incessantly and then finding the subject that they're talking about that you like, and then you can kind of fall into that world. Like for me, uh, Chicago's own Colt Cabana was, mm-hmm. was a big inspiration for turned out a punk. Cause he was doing art of wrestling and talking to wrestlers in a way like he was, he was in their world and he was, you know, he had this great grasp on wrestling history and, I was like, oh, I think that would work with punk because they're very kind of similar lifestyles, punk and wrestling. Obviously, a lot more working out required. Yeah, punk, yeah. But, um, you, yeah you don't often get yeah. hit in the face with a <laughs> chair the, the, either. No, no, no. And if you do, it's it's definitely a very wild yeah, bad luck for yeah. a teen show or something <laughs> like that. Where the chairs yeah. are well, wait, wait. So, so let me take <laughs> yeah, the, the concept dwarf. and flip it on both of you. Yeah. All right. If there's a, a criticism that uh, the straight world would make of fucked up is, you know, you're doing this uh, 22 years, right? You know, you're you're, uh, uh, you're you're preaching to the converted, right? And anyway, in 2023, what does punk even mean, right? So for each of you, what does punk mean and why continue to pursue it with fucked up? Oh, geez, I don't. I don't know what punk means anymore. And it's funny because, like, when I was a teenager and in my 20s, you know, doing a radio show with Damien, doing a zine, like, just being the biggest nerd, like, biggest scene stir back then, I talked about punk constantly and what it was. And I feel like I had kind of burnt out on that subject. Um, Yeah, but see, I don't mean, uh, Sandy, I don't mean the... um, Maximum rock and roll, you know, this is punk, that isn't punk, minutia of it. I mean, why be an adult, both of you are adults, and, and family people, and other careers, and, and mortgages, right? Why be an adult and continue to scream into the void? Philosophically, not what is <laughs> punk and what isn't punk, you know what I mean? Why do you do this? Uh, well, I think for me, I love hmm. it. You know, I love it. So, and I, I don't know, I don't mean, once again, to take No, this, no, this you're, you're, you're the wordsmith here, no. You love it, obviously. That <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's a great answer. And Sandy, and when Sandy loves it, like Sandy, when Sandy says she did a zine, she did the best zine anyone's ever done. Certainly of her age in Toronto, like the level of research that she was putting into it, just the approach to it as like a kid, yeah. you know. And at the same time, Sandy did this TV show about punk too, or about just independent music, and interviewed all these bands at a certain point as well, and. You know, I think that's the thing is, is I think I, I'm out there waving my punk flag every second I can and yelling it. But we were all like deep in this culture. And I was probably the least productive <laughs> member of the Toronto punk scene. Well, I always I, I always go back to what Lester Bang said to me when I was 17. High school kid sitting with his hero two weeks before he died. You know, I said, what is good rock and roll? And 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 uh, what is punk? And, you know, there was this long pause. And I would have figured, you know, having been interviewed many times at 33, he, he'd have that, like, boilerplate, right? He took a long, long pause before he answered. He said, good rock and roll is something that makes you feel alive. I think Hank yeah. Williams was punk. I think Charles Mingus was punk, he said. You know, and, and I'm... I got it. I mean, I think there's two things. There's that love and catharsis that you talked about earlier that, that are needed. And there's also a certain amount of FU. It can be very quiet FU, right? It can be Nick Drake, you know. But it's FU, all of you who would tell me how to live. I'm going to try my own path. 
I think it's like God. You know, if you went to someone and you said, like, what is God to you? Yeah. And, you know, everyone would have a different relationship and a different answer to it. I think punk's the same way. Like, you know, I've read Avril Lavigne, I remember doing interviews back in the day talking about being punk. But at the same time, Martine from Los Crudos is punk. And at the same time, uh, like Machine Gun Kelly talks about being punk. Mm-hmm. At the same time. Chuck D is Carl punk. Was, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think punk is everybody's going to be somebody's poser and no one's going to be punk enough for any, everybody. And so it's ultimately what you define it as. Mm. And it's, it's going to be different for every single person. Yeah. And that's the thing I, I, I think I could only really have that definition of punk once I finally kind of dropped out mm. and stopped being like the sort of like DIY punk orthodox person that would be, give you a very different definition back then about what punk was versus now. And then I've talked to, all these different people. And I think the thing that's amazing about it is it, no matter what your definition uh, is of it. And there's some people that I find abhorrent politically that identify as punk. So I I certainly don't think everyone's great that finds power in this punk thing, but what everyone does find in punk is permission to express themselves. Mm. And you find that as a very young person, it's one of the few places where some of the best records in the world were made by like 15 and 17 year olds. Yeah. Well, Linda Linda's, what yeah. are we mad. Well, they're I mean, great. And, they, and, yeah. and they're like, they're fascinating. I'm like really into this idea of this sort of this generation that grew up in it. You know, like mm-hmm. they're the kids of the people that started Giant Robot. Like one of them, she was told me she went to shows, like the first show she went to was like Channel 3 when she was like <laughs> yeah, a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other two, their father was the drummer in the band FYP. Yeah. You know, like the, the legendary uh, San Pedro punk band. Yeah. So there's like this sort of lineage that they're a part of and, and chubby and the gang too charlie from chubby and the gang his dad did all the animation in the great rock and roll swindle uh. so there's, <laughs> we're now seeing sort of like what happens the next wave of punk is going to be the kids of the punk right you know well, you, that were raised into it and where are they going to take it the thing the thing about you guys and you know that was so inspiring when i got into punk that was the, the music of my youth i i that was what turned me on to rock and roll and wanting to write about it, you know, and then later talk about it, um, was um, the whole idea that there, the only rule of punk is that there are no rules. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be what you want. Like you're saying, you express yourself, self-expression. And I remember thinking like when Husker Du came out with Zen Arcade and punk band can't do that. They can't make a double album with an entire sidelong track on it. It's a little grateful dad on this. <laughs> yeah, they can. And then the Minutemen said, we can do that too. And, and, and they did. And it was just mind-blowing, the creativity that it inspired. And I think punk really became codified in the 90s, like the green days of the world made this, it, this mainstream thing that if you didn't sound quite like that, you weren't punk or whatever. And then fucked up comes along, and you kind of threw out that rule book again. It was kind of like Jesus; these guys don't sound like any punk band that I know. You know, it's kind of like, and that was a great thing. I thought it was amazing. You know, um, that you sort of opened up that world. You were still just very punk on stage, you know, and kind of the energy and the spontaneity. But then these records were something else too. So it, it seemed like maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seemed like you you threw out the rule book too. Say we're not going to play by anybody's rules. Right from well, the I, I very much appreciate that. And I, th- I think the thing was that we were students of it. You know, like we studied punk. I would go and just buy anything that looked remotely DIY 45-wise. And I think that really expanded my idea of what punk was. And you're right, there is a codification that happens. I think it happens even earlier. I think 83 
it starts happening. And then I know if you talk to the Dinosaur Junior guys, they claim it was when Seven Seconds put out Committed for Life. Like, that was the end <laughs> of the innovation of it in hardcore period. And that's when everyone starts sounding a certain way, and you had to be, quote-unquote, a certain thing to be hardcore. And that's why they did Dinosaur Junior, because they found it really boring at that point. But I think, the, the once again, to go back to the thing before, it's like, as much as, like, you know, during the Green Day period, where Green Day, you know, obviously it's getting defined as a certain thing, there's also, like no comment and and neanderthal and all this great power violence stuff all this incredible burning spirit stuff happening in japan there's neurosis putting out records there's bikini kill putting out records there's just like this sort of like consistent web and i think the thing that's amazing about it is that you're not you're never gonna be able to hold on to punk and that's why i think people are so adamant about what it has to be and what it's not is because you know it's going to eventually slip away and another generation is going to get the ball and they're going to take it maybe a completely different direction. But that's because that's what's going to keep punk pure is that you can't hold on to it forever. Mm -hmm. You can't be the zeitgeist of punk, you know, into your 70s, 60s, because, you know, look at John Lydon. He's not speaking to young people in the way Turnstile is. You know, like that's just the reality of the way society works and i think that's what makes punk so great is the fact that it's always going to be out of the hands of people that once held it mm -hmm. yeah very true sandy what do you think well i was just I, i've been pondering the question uh, as damien spoke and yeah i think punk is pure energy and um that's not concerned about you know um pleasing or or being um e easy to digest like i feel like punk is kind of a little bit about like taking something that's ugly and and making it beautiful but like not trying to like uh, I, I don't know why i'm struggling so hard no, that's with this good question. i like that. i mean i did just <laughs> i did just wake up at 11 but no i think that was well said <laughs> really well you know it, it was so easy to give the wikipedia definition of it wouldn't be anything worth us devoting our lives to. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like punk is like it's it's just about, you know, doing what you want and 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 being being true about it and and not, you know, caring what people think really just just doing what 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 you feel and e even if it's, you know, a little ugly like, you know, we're, we're not very image conscious about how things look or, you know, we, we don't conform to like, you know, normal beauty standards or like we don't we don't make radio friendly music gender it's, gender um, conformity yeah yeah all kinds of conformity like you know i mean um kind of related like uh, something someone once said i can't remember who like what was it tim molinari damien who was like you guys look like you're all in different bands <laughs> we, yeah. you, we're just sort of like we're all just so different we don't look alike and we don't act alike we don't think alike. it's, it's just it's just like we're just chaos yeah well i think the thing I think the thing that holds us together is this love of punk and now sort of this this band, which is Gaz, Gaze, who just broke up in Japan they, after 40 years. Um, the, probably the best punk band ever. Like, I think that is, I will I will put money on that, them being the greatest hardcore punk band mm. of all time, punk band of all time. Um, but they, the rumor was that they knew nothing about each other. They'd meet for these sort of like five-hour jam sessions and then go back to their regular lives mm. and just be completely different individuals. And the thing that held them together was sort of the love of this music. And that band is a band that everyone in Fucked Up has different uh, levels of love with, but we all are fans. And weirdly, I think that's what we've kind of weirdly become. You know, mm. we just are so different as people. Like Sandy and I, 
you know, our, our, we have, we hang out and talk a little bit, you know, and Joan and I have a, a love of, of, you know, deep diving punk history, but we're pretty much on our own till we get together and go do yeah. something for the band. Yeah. We have been talking to uh, Damian Abraham and Sandy Miranda of the mighty fucked up. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great album one day. A million years of time it took for our eyes to allow to share the look of every day at once. That I was not allowed to feel the love gift in your smile to make it all the everlasting That's it for this bonus episode. If you've got thoughts on this episode or anything we do, uh, on the podcast or on the radio show, start a conversation in our Facebook group or leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Lauren Holt. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Thanks for listening. And fucked up. Say it, Greg. <laughs> fucked up! Yeah, we can, we can say it. Freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs>